Hello, I'm Ryan Stitt, and welcome back to the History of Ancient Greece. We are taking a break from our regularly scheduled programming for a special guest episode today. This will be the first episode in a series where I converse with classicists about either books or articles that they have published, their current research interests, or just unique classes and topics that they are teaching and exploring further. In today's special episode, Dr. Donna Zuckerberg and I talk about her role as editor-in-chief of Eidolon, which is an online journal for scholarly writing about classics that isn't formal scholarship. This leads us into a discussion about the importance of public-facing history. More importantly, though, we discuss her new book titled Not All Dead White Men, Classics and Misogyny in the Digital Age, which is a study of the reception of classics in red pill communities. A virulent strain of anti-feminism is thriving online that treats women's empowerment as a mortal threat to men and to the integrity of Western civilization. Its proponents cite ancient Greek and Latin texts to support their claims, arguing that they articulate a model of masculinity that sustained generations but is now under siege. Dr. Donna Zuckerberg dives deep into the virtual communities of the far right, where men lament their loss of power and privilege and strategize about how to reclaim them. She finds, mixed in with weightlifting tips and misogynistic vitriol, the words of the Stoics deployed to support an ideal vision of masculine life. On other sites, pickup artists quote Ovid's Ars Amatoria to justify ignoring women's boundaries. By appropriating the classics, these men lend a veneer of intellectual authority and ancient wisdom to their project of patriarchal white supremacy. In defense or retaliation, feminists have also taken up the classics online to counter the sanctioning of violence against women. Not All Dead White Men reveals that some of the most controversial and consequential debates about the legacy of the ancients are raging not in universities, but online. To discuss this further, I am joined today by Dr. Donna Zuckerberg, editor of Eidolon and author of the forthcoming book titled Not All Dead White Men, Classics and Misogyny in the Digital Age. It's due out October 8th, but you can pre-order it now. So I must say that I really enjoyed it. It is very harrowing to read. Um, (laughs) As you state in your book, social media has led to unprecedented levels of democratization of information, but it's also created these opportunities for crazy conspiracy theories, lies, and all sorts of misinformation to spread. Yeah. And I wrote this before QAnon, so... (laughs) When I was a classic student, a grad student, I didn't know anything about the perverted ways that people misrepresent classics. And I didn't even get on Twitter until when I started the podcast in 2016. So I didn't know anything about anything. So the last two years, it's been an education in how depths into how low human beings can sink. We'll just put it that way. <laughs> it does feel that way. Well, I guess we'll start. Do you want to explain your inspirations for this book, the background that led you into it? What's for better or worse, the path that led you to write this book? Yeah, absolutely. So I feel like I've told this story a whole bunch of times recently, but the genesis of this book happened by accident in the summer of 2015, late in the summer, early in the fall. So it was because of Eidolon, actually, that we just published an article on Eidolon with the title, Why is Stoicism Having a Cultural Moment? And it was one of our early success stories, got a ton of traffic for us. And I was tracking the sources of the traffic, as one does as editor. And I discovered this weird spike coming from Reddit. And my first thought was, "Uh uh-oh, because, you know, Reddit... But actually, it was coming from a Stoicism subreddit, which at the time had about 30,000 subscribers, but now has over 100,000 subscribers. 
But the Stoicism subreddit is an okay place. You know, it's not like Creepshots Reddit or anything like <laughs> that. It's it's a place where people talk about various problems they're having in their lives and how to approach them in a more stoic way. It seems like the kind of thing that, you know, if Reddit had existed in ancient Rome, Seneca would have been all over that. <laughs> anyway, somebody had posted the article and they were discussing it. And, and people were saying, you know, is this really a cultural moment or is it more of a resurgence of stoicism, you know, after a period of dormancy? Those are the kind of discussions that were happening there. But one commenter had posted this paragraph about how he thought that the rise in popularity in stoicism was because of the red pill. And because in the red pill community, people love stoicism. They think of it as a real masculine philosophy that is totally in keeping with their gender politics. Can you describe the red pill community? I didn't know what that was until I read your book. <laughs> so Absolutely. Although... I mean, as you saw from my book, finding it is not always the easiest thing. Very true. <laughs> so the Red Pill is a community of a few hundred thousand men. The community exists mostly online. And their core belief is that straight white men are discriminated against in our society. That all of the people who the progressive left thinks of as being oppressed are actually the oppressors. And that really, we live in this Orwellian nightmare where we've all been fooled into thinking that women are discriminated against when actually they're the ones who are in charge and discriminating against men. Do we know when this started, this phenomena of these people who are generally speaking the oppressors think they're the oppressed? That general trend seems like you could probably find it throughout history, but the red pill community as it exists today seems to have started coalescing on the internet in sort of the late aughts. And really then it was primarily the men's rights activists. So this is a subgroup of the red pill community that is largely focused on issues like false rape accusations and father's rights, custody battles, issues of that sort. And then gradually over time, the red pill umbrella has expanded to include other subgroups of men who have similar gender politics. So for example, the pickup artist community at some point got sort of taken under the umbrella because it's this group of men who believe that what women really want deep down is for men to be dominant, to be alpha, and that women really want to be submissive to alpha males. So that kind of idea meshes quite well with the way that some other people in the community feel about traditional male and female gender roles. And then sort of opposed to the pickup artists, you have the men going their own way who think that the sexual politics in our society are so beyond repair that the only really sound strategy for men is to opt out entirely and to live a life that's separate from women. How is that possible? <laughs> think sort of politis and Europeanisipolitis. He has this whole speech about how he wishes that men could just go to a temple and bring some money and they would get a baby in return. They wouldn't even need to involve women in the entire generation process for, for continuing the human race. <laughs> when I think about that, I think of this can't be that serious of a phenomenon because eventually it's going to be like one generation because you're not going to procreate and you're just going to die out. 
I don't know, unless they have kids and then hate doing it, so to speak. But they're only one facet of this much larger community that includes plenty of men who are not at all opposed to sexual reproduction. So, yeah. And the, the way in which the different parts of the community sort of feed on each other and, you know, sometimes through antagonism, right? Because the men going their own way and the pickup artists hate each other. But that, you know, the, the tension between the groups, the way they argue with each other, you could see it really as sort of a productive force that drives a lot of discourse and really brings more people into both communities. So bringing this back to your background for writing this book... Yes. And I should have mentioned before, the red pill is a metaphor that's taken from the movie The Matrix. And it's sort of an allegory of the cave. Once you take the red pill, you can see the world for how it really is. And it, you know, it opens your eyes. It's a form of enlightenment. The fact that The Matrix was written and directed by two trans women is not a fact that many people in the red pill community <laughs> like to think about very much. We see that with the ancient world when people co-opt certain things, they push other things under the carpet to fit their worldview. So that doesn't shock me at all. <laughs> no. Yeah, it's, it's very consistent. <laughs> so I saw this comment about the red pill and its interest in stoicism. And my first thought was sort of, well, that's weird. <laughs> because I had had a few brushes with the red pill community, not personally, but I, I was aware of its existence. And it had always been angry trolls. So that was my sense of who these men were, that they were very angry. And Stoicism and anger obviously don't mix well. That's sort of one of the core beliefs of Stoicism is that anger is never justified, that it's always the result of some kind of misunderstanding, that an injury has been done to you when in fact you have not been harmed. So I decided to explore further. You know, I'm a scholar. That's what we do. You discover a weird <laughs> phenomenon and you want to dig in. And... I discovered, to my surprise, that a lot of red pill websites are really interested in stoicism. There's a heavy self-improvement element to the community, especially, you know, the pickup artists. A lot of that is, you know, how to look your best, how to act confident, things like that. So one of the aspects of the self-improvement is mental self-improvement. So they have these lists of recommended reading. And you'll find Marcus Aurelius on almost every list. Go figure. Yeah. So that was the first inkling I had that there was a topic here. And then around the same time, I was just by chance reading about Neil Strauss, the guy who wrote the game. He did an interview with The Atlantic about his follow-up memoir. And he mentioned that he still thought that the pickup strategies in the game were totally sound. And he said something like, what works has always been the same from Ovid to the present day. So that also sort of jumped out at me that there was this connection between Ovid and the pickup artist community. And that it wasn't just a connection where there might be similarities, that there was actually reception happening. Just to be clear, you're talking about Ovid's Ars Amatoria. Yes, Ovid's Ars Amatoria. Which is a fascinating read, but not when it's used for nefarious purposes. I mean, even then, I think it's especially a fascinating read in that context. <laughs> that was the first actual Latin that I read that wasn't like fake Latin passages, weirdly enough. It was an early one for me too, actually. So I have kind of fond memories of it in that context. But even then, I knew that it was a disturbing text. Yeah, it justifies sexual assault quite a bit with very good language. Yeah, 
that jumped out at me right away. I was reading it. I was 17 years old. There was this passage that said that sooner would a deer turn her back on dogs that were chasing her or sooner would cicadas be silent in the summer than a woman would say no to a man who wanted her. And this was summer in New York City and the cicadas were, you know, screaming outside the window. And I thought this is really kind of toxic. You know, they really justifies the idea that no woman really genuinely would say no to a man who wants her. Oh, yeah. The idea that women's boundaries are, I guess, permeable and consent is not a thing would be attractive to a lot of guys throughout history. So I can see how that type of text would fit with these type of people. Especially in a college setting. Yeah, for sure. Young and dumb. Yep. So that is how I got into this topic. These two sort of isolated incidents happened very close together. And I thought, you know, maybe there's a larger project here with sort of classical reception in the red pill community more generally. And when it started, it was very much about gender and gender politics and misogyny, you know, misogyny in the subtitle. And that's still the primary focus of the book. But then as I was writing the book over the course of 2016, the red pill community, which had previously been very much an anti-feminist space, it still is, but that was its main fixation. The red pill community sort of merged with the alt-right and increasingly websites that had really focused on anti-feminism started to talk about anti-Semitism and then straight up white supremacy as 2016 went on. That must have been very surreal to be writing that book in 2016 with the backdrop of the Trump election and Brexit and just everything going on. It was. I thought that Hillary would win, though. I turned in the first draft of my manuscript on November 3rd, and the entire sort of tenor of the book was, look, I know Hillary Clinton is now president, and these alt-right guys are sort of a distant bad memory, but here's why I think that this was sort of an important moment for classical reception that we should still be talking about and trying to unpack. That was the message of the first draft of the book. And then I turned it in, and a week later... (laughs) The election happened, and I thought, wow, I'm, I'm really going to have to... To redo that. <laughs> redo the tone. Totally, totally <laughs> change the tone of everything in here. Because I was very defensive about the topic at first, because when I pulled people what I was working on, they would say things like, oh, well, you know, better you than me. Or don't you think if we ignored these guys, they'd go away? Nobody says that stuff anymore. Yeah, that seems to be a running theme in the last couple of years. Just ignore the problems, especially the white supremacist problems, and they'll go away. And they've, in fact, gotten worse and louder. Now I can't post something on social media without getting some sort of nasty troll on it. And I'm a guy. So it's like we've ignored it too much. And that's something that people ask me a lot. Also, they ask if I've tried to engage with the alt-right, if I've discussed what classics means to them with members of the community in sort of an interview setting. And unfortunately, that was not possible because I was unable to talk to members of the alt-right without it devolving into abusive language. So it just seemed like there was no point. Yeah, you talked about in your book the different methods that they use, which I have experienced myself. And I was like, oh, she is laying down the exact methods that they use online. It's false equivalency, the straw man arguments. Then they just start basically ad hominem attacks. And eventually I got to the point where I just mute people. I have a huge mute list. I don't block them because I don't want to give them the satisfaction of being blocked. And I like the fact that they comment on every single one of my posts and they're screaming into the void and don't get a single response back. 
every now and then a new person will catch me on a bad moment and I will chirp back at them. Yeah, it's almost never worth it, right? You just wasted an hour or whatever because you're fighting with some troll or someone's probably sitting in their PJs in their basement. Yeah, and a lot of them only have a few followers. So if you respond, it's actually very easy for them within sort of their community to frame you as the bully now who is bringing your audience against them. I also have a personal rule where I don't respond to anybody who doesn't actually use their real name in a Twitter handle unless I know who they are. Interesting. That's a good rule. Yeah. So if, if you're making a fake account, you're either doing it for funny satire or you're doing it to troll people. So I'm not going to respond to a fake account with nobody's name on it because I know what your intention is and you're not trying to debate in good faith. Right. I do use a block list. So I use block together, which is a tool that allows you to block all the people who somebody else is blocking. And you can share it around. Yeah, exactly. It was something that I needed at a certain point in time early in 2017. I had a moment, a few weeks, a few months where I was getting so much vitriol on Twitter that it felt like my options were use a tool like that or not use Twitter. Maybe I made the wrong choice. (laughs) Who knows? (laughs) It seems to be working for you now. I mean, whatever it takes to get through difficult situations. I actually didn't even know that Eidolon until 2017. And now I read every article. You do a fabulous job, you and your writers. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it changed Eidolon around that time. When I launched it in 2015, I really just thought of it as a place where classicists could write for broader audiences. But my conception of what it could do really also shifted over the course of 2016. I saw that the articles that I felt proudest of and the ones that I thought that we were getting the best response on were the articles that really engaged critically with what classics as a discipline was doing in public discourse and political discourse. So the sort of meta angle where there were articles that were sort of about classics as a discipline. Those were the pieces that I felt were really successful. It's making classics reaching more people and it's bringing it to modern culture in a sense. It's making it seem like it's not just the distant past. Because I know a lot of people that read when I share articles, especially from there, they're like, oh, this is parallel to modern day sort of stuff. And I didn't see that before when I was younger. I didn't see as many articles about that. It could have just been me and I was missing it, but it just seems there's more. It's reaching a broader audience and hitting home that the, the ancient world is relevant to today in a good thing, generally speaking. Yes, I think that's exactly right. And we used to do a lot more of those sort of ancient modern comparison articles. But for some reason, those kinds of pieces stopped appealing to me so much over time, I started getting a little bit bored of that formula, just because I wasn't sure what exactly the point was. You know, it seemed as though many of those articles sort of did this thing where they would say, look at ancient phenomenon X doesn't it remind you of modern phenomenon Y? And then that was sort of it. There wasn't really a push to see what that could mean. And it's hard to articulate what exactly a similarity between the ancient world and the modern world means. But many people don't even bother to try. I guess what I'm getting at, to give some examples, you're doing a series now on parenting and classics. There was several articles that I liked about 
the Iliad and the Broadway play, the Hamilton, I remember that. It's bringing pop culture into classics, especially like uh, lighter pieces, not that the heavier ones aren't any good. Oh, thank you. I mean, I agree with you. We're really known, I think, especially by people who don't like Eidolon very much as sort of hand-wringing, girl-clutching leftists who are always talking about how problematic classics is. But that's, in my view, a really small percentage of our content. And I wouldn't characterize it that way anyway. I would say that it's more sort of engaging critically with elements of our discipline. So I remember the first time I came across Eidolon was, like I said, 2017. And it was when you were doing the Harry Potter stuff that resonated to me <laughs> for whatever that means, because <laughs> I really liked Harry Potter. I loved that special issue. I loved all those articles. And I was like, oh, this is really cool. And then you obviously have done a lot of heavier pieces, but you still do the pop culture. It doesn't need to be one or the other, right? I mean, we had in the Harry Potter issue, a lot of pieces that were sort of funny, but also dealt with more complicated and difficult topics, like the Fantastic Beasts and Where to Return Them piece, which talked about the traffic in creatures in the Harry Potter universe, and also the traffic in antiquities and how this sort of Cerberus-like creature in the first Harry Potter book is smuggled and, and the sort of resonance is there. So that's a big, serious, important topic and a lighter, more fun topic. Now, or the Minerva McGonagall's tenure file piece, which was satire, and I, I thought it was hilarious. Yeah, it was. Also was sort of this commentary on various kinds of sexism and discrimination in the academy and how it is difficult for women to achieve professional success in academia. I guess it wouldn't be really until 2017, like later 2017, when I really started noticing that there was a significant problem. And then I was just sharing pictures and memes and things. And it wasn't really until I started sharing more heavy topics that I started getting a lot of negativity and then 2018 with the black Achilles and all sorts of things. There's several different instances where I was just like, whoa, I did not know people were like this. Yeah, I think for a lot of classicists who were active on Twitter, it didn't necessarily start with negativity. I think that people started to notice, in fact, that they were just getting followers and engagement with people who had Pepe avatars and Twitter handles that referenced sort of very obviously alt-right tropes. And people started to become aware that the alt-right internet was just interested in classics and was sort of keeping an eye on what classicists were saying online, not necessarily even with a view toward attacking them, very possibly with a view toward wanting to glorify classics and its place as the origin of Western civilization, which for them became this sort of code for white supremacy. That's a good transition. So why do these type of people believe classics as this cornerstone of Western, aka white civilization? What are other things that these type of people specifically see in the ancient world that they can latch their ideologies onto? Almost to the point that they fetishize the ancient world to fit their ideology erroneously. You talk about some of this in your book, but what are some of the things that they latch onto specifically their talking points? Why classics? Or is there other fields of history and study that they latch onto as well? There are other fields of history and study that they latch onto. Classics is important for them because it's the origin. It's really the the foundational moment for them of Western civilization. You know, it starts with classical Athens. I mean, it starts before that, obviously, 
they're happy to look back to Homer, as we were talking about with Black Achilles. But I think that really classical Athens for them is the beginning of Western civilization. So that's where it all starts. And that's sort of these tremendous cultural achievements that they want to latch onto and claim as their own in order to prove that the gifts that white men have given the world are of such tremendous cultural value that white men deserve their perch in a position of power over everybody else. They are also interested, of course, in medieval studies. They see this transition happening from sort of pagan classics over to, to Christianity, and you have all the, the Hale Vinland guys who sort of want to take on this Viking raider identity. That's been a real reckoning for medieval studies as a discipline as well. You can see something very, very parallel to what's happening in classics there. And I think also, to a lesser extent, in smaller departments like Germanic studies, Russian studies. They latch back onto it for several reasons. You point out the white Western history, but that just always blew my mind to think about it. Because when I learned Greek history, I never really thought of it as like white history because the Greeks and Romans weren't quote unquote white. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. The idea that the sort of mainstream college curriculum was made up of dead white men, you know, that was a phrase that was bandied around quite a lot. But I always thought of that as being primarily about sort of the Enlightenment. Those were the dead white men, not Plato. That really, I think, is a later retrojection. And that's something that I discuss in my book, that it's hard for them to reconcile because the evidence for the whiteness of the ancient Greeks and Romans is very poor. That hasn't stopped them from claiming that the ancient Greeks and Romans were white, but it's a little more challenging for them. And that's another reason why my primary focus in the book is on the ancient Mediterranean as a locus for the beginning of patriarchy, because that is much easier for them to retroject. There they can really look at the ancient texts and say, well, there's a justification for male supremacy over women in this text. And often there is. All the way back to the Theogony, I believe. Yeah, that's a great starting point. You have Simonides, who is an interesting character. I see that quoted all the time, weirdly. And then the episodes I just did talked quite a bit about Xenophon's Oikonomicus. Not everybody in the ancient world was like that, but I mean, you can see it in the text. And as you mentioned in your book, they're very poignant in the way that they talk about women being inferior, essentially, need to be subjugated. Yeah, but even, you know, in Hesiod, part of what you're clearly seeing is anxiety about the power that women have over men, especially reproductive power. So that sort of goes back to the question you asked earlier about at what point the oppressor class starts seeing itself as the oppressed class. And I really think the answer to that is always. Yeah, I meant specifically with the red pill people. But and then I was like, well, I know where this answer is going to go as soon as it left my mouth. <laughs> right. Well, but that's why it's so attractive for them to see themselves in these texts. And it's not always a great fit. Often it's a pretty bad fit, but they are able to make it work for them. And then if you or I, you know, as, as somebody with classical education comes in and says, well, actually, you know, it's a little more complicated than that. If you look at the Hesiodic text, then you're sort of dismissed as a gatekeeper. Simple-minded views don't have nuance, especially on social media. <laughs> yeah, nuance, understanding the past with people who have these type of views, it doesn't go hand in hand. 
one of the Simonides snippet that we have was one of the earliest things that I came across. I was like, wow, this is something like you would hear still today. It goes to show that some things over time don't change. You know, he calls women pigs, women are animals. Like you still hear that sort of thing today. And it it just was like a light bulb. It's like, oh, I wonder if this is where it came from. Yeah. In a way, I think that sort of over the top misogyny is a little bit easier almost in sort of a college Greek lyric class to deal with because it's so out there and so extreme. It's the more subtle ways in which misogyny is threaded through all the texts that I think can create a lot more difficulty in the classroom, you know, like the beginning of Herodotus. How are you going to talk about the reciprocal abductions there? And then just like the whole legal code of Athens, which I guess is back to your point that they latch on Athens because of the way their entire system was structured, fits into their worldview. And it's not outright misogynistic. I mean, it can be at points, but it's systematically. And it's just subtly that it bleeds through the entire system. Yeah, that's the Kate man, right? Distinction between misogyny and sexism. And yes, perhaps the legal code is not openly misogynistic, but if you are enshrining laws that ensure that women will always be the legal and financial property of men, then that that is definitely systemic sexism. So these ancient views, these authors and the views that they espoused, these red pill people, do they want a society in which these views one for one are that's how society is? Or how do they want to see it in practice? I guess I should say, in theory, if they could have it their way and society was based upon their thoughts, how would it be the exact as ancient Athens? I think it would be very similar. So this is something that I address much more in chapter four. It's sort of about false rape allegations and the myth of Phaedra, but really it's about sort of the aspirational sexual politics of the red pill community and the way in which they make these claims about how women are less rational than men and women are always duplicitous. And then it sort of becomes this argument for them for why men should have legal and financial and total decision-making power over women, and especially over female reproduction. There is a lot of discussion in the alt-right and in various parts of the Red Pill community about how it would be so much better for everybody, including for women, if we return to a model where fathers sort of married their virgin daughters off at age 16 or so. To 40-year-old guys. Probably they want them slightly closer to their own age. So sort of late 20s, yeah. Slight variance to ancient Greece then. (laughs) Yeah, slight variance. So in the alt-right, this is about race, largely. This is the way that you protect the white race. You keep women from having the ability to choose their own sexual partners. Because if you give them the ability to choose, then they might choose somebody who isn't white. Can't have that. So white fathers should marry their virginal white daughters to white men. That thought process, at least to me, seems to stem from um, low self-esteem. You want to implement rules so these white girls won't choose other people instead of me sort of mentality. I know what you mean. I know what you're getting at. That's one of the places where the incel community, which has been getting a lot of press in the past few months, intersects with the red pill and with the alt-right. This idea of enforced monogamy that came up. That's one of the ways in which they believe that our society can be improved. So short answer, yes, I think that their aspirational sexual politics would look a lot like something that classical scholars would recognize from the period we study. 
That is shockingly horrific. And the logic is totally wrong, right? First of all, not only is there not a consistent sexual politics, marriage law, anything like that in the classical world to look back to, but it doesn't even solve the problems that they claim that they would be solving. So for instance, what the myth of Phaedra shows is that a false rape allegation can happen even within this heavily patriarchal setting. You can't solve that problem just by instating a heavily restrictive patriarchal system where virgins get married off to older men. But that's not how they read the myth. They read the myth as proof that women have always had this urge to lie about getting raped as a way to get revenge on men. And the rest of it's hand-waving. And I bet most of these people really love Sparta too, but then Sparta had different views on women, different from Athens. So that's kind of like pick and choose your Greeks polis, what you like, for what reasons, and kind of mold them all together sort of thing. Right, exactly. Yeah, Sparta is attractive to them because of sort of the Malin Labe slaves and this idea of sort of ethnic purity that Hitler latched onto. But let's ignore the fact that there was pederasty and that their women had greater freedom and we'll slide pederasty completely under the rug and we'll look at Athens for the way they treated their women. It's like pick and choose ancient Greece. Well, and also the existence of the Hilak community, right? Because among sort of online white supremacists these days, it's really an ideology of separatism, right? The thing that you hear them say is they all have to go back by which they mean black people have to go back to Africa, for example. And the idea is that they'll create this pure little white ethno state. And this is their response to people who say that they're white supremacists, is that they'll say, no, we don't think that white people should have supremacy over anybody. We just think that white people should be able to protect their culture by having their own little enclave. This may be specific to America, but if they want black people to go back to Africa, then are they asking for the white people to go back to Europe at the same time? Because we weren't here much longer than the slaves came over. (laughs) You're trying to find logic. That's the the first mistake. (laughs) I mean, yeah, for sure, right? White people are not indigenous to the United States. What they would say to that is that there was a war and white people won, so they sort of now rightfully have claim to this land. But on the other hand, the very real genocide that is sort of hand-waved over by that description for them is nothing in comparison with white genocide, which is not even a real thing and does not involve killing people. In their minds, it involves sort of breeding white people out of existence. So white genocide is pointing out that there were people of color in the ancient world to them. Anything that erases white culture, which is not even really a meaningful concept in the first place. Which has another logical fallacy there. White people, quote unquote, won, so they deserve to be here. But at the same time, they think that white culture is threatened because they're, quote unquote, losing whatever is going on. Right, exactly. There's absolutely no attempt to engage critically with the ways in which whiteness is a category that was constructed and has been malleable over time. But yes, trying to argue about logic with these people is always a losing endeavor. You talked about ancient Stoicism, and that's how it started with you, like you're noticing them, especially Marcus Aurelius and stuff. But what do these people look back into ancient Stoicism to justify their misogynistic beliefs? Do they think women are more emotional and thus morally inferior? Like- that's definitely a huge part of it, that women and also people of color 
that they are inherently more emotional and less rational, which in stoicism is sort of equivalent to being morally inferior. That's a big part of it. But also stoicism has this sort of very individualistic, almost neoliberal aspect to it, where the improvement of the self is paramount. So, you know, at the end of the day, you can't influence what anybody else does, right? All you can do is make sure that you are acting in a rational way and seeing the world in a rational way. So it provides this justification for people who are already at the very top of the food chain to really prioritize their own self-improvement as a morally virtuous endeavor. So it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, essentially, in their eyes. They are where they're at because they are less emotional and therefore more and morally superior. And as long as they keep that way, they'll keep where they're at and nothing else really impacts that sort of thing. Right. And, and every individual's improvement is that own individual's responsibility. And some Stoic scholars would argue that this is a perversion of Stoicism and not an accurate reading. But Stoicism does tolerate the interpretation that the fact that oppression exists is something that is outside of you. It is not Edeon, right? It is Elotrion. So it is not necessarily your responsibility to fix that. It is just your responsibility to, to take care of your own house. Which seems to, once again, logical fallacy goes against a lot of the trying to change the world around them sort of thing, getting angry at people who are trying to make the lot of people who are oppressed better. So kind of not consistent there. Just pointing out another inconsistency. <laughs> yes. Yeah, no, that's, that's absolutely right. I mean, they, they believe that they're oppressed and they want to sort of lift themselves up. But I mean, they must understand on some level that they are not. So did you study a lot of ancient Stoic philosophy until you started this path in 2015? Or was it something that like, oh, they're into Stoicism, I should figure out more? I mean, you said you read that article, but I think your background is in tragedy, right? Yeah, that's right. I did not know that much about Stoicism. And in fact, there was almost no Stoicism on my graduate school reading list for general exams. I had this weird moment when I was looking at a reading list on a red pill website. And I kind of felt like, wow, there's more stoicism on here than there is on the Princeton PhD reading list. So stoicism was something that I had to learn about in the process of researching the book. I was on much more comfortable ground when writing about Ovid and the Ars Amatoria, and also about Euripides. But that goes back to when I studied in graduate school. Life takes you down an unexpected path, I guess, for better or worse. I enjoyed it, especially Cicero and Seneca, but... I can't say that I've read Marcus Aurelius in translation from cover to cover, let alone in the, the original language, but I have read parts of it. It's kind of great. I mean, this is the thing. When I was reading it, I, I absolutely understood the appeal. There's one part, I think the, the sort of most quoted passage is when you wake up, you should say to yourself, today, I'm going to encounter people who are lazy and selfish and stupid and obnoxious. And they are that way because they don't know any better. And it is not my problem. It's their problem. That's the perfect quote and banner to live by with social media. <laughs> yeah. And it's a really profound and sort of freeing concept. So the Eidolon article about stoicism was not written by me. It was written by Kira Sopozio. She sort of unambiguously comes down on the side of arguing that the resurgence in stoicism is a great and very healthy thing. 
And stoicism also has a lot of similarities to, for example, cognitive behavioral therapy. So stoicism is not necessarily inherently red pill or inherently white supremacist. Well, it might be inherently misogynistic, but that's sort of a more complicated topic <laughs> that I go into in my, in my book. This is chapter two in your book, correct? Yes, this is chapter two. There's a lot about stoicism that is really wonderful. And yet I've seen Marcus Aurelius on so many red pill reading lists that when I meet somebody just in the course of my life and they ask me what I do and I say that I study classics and they say, oh, I reread Marcus Aurelius every year. <laughs> Yeah, I get sort of like a chill down my spine. Like, oh no, <laughs> are you one of them? That's how I've gotten in the last year or two almost with, I really like Thucydides, but it seems like that is the weird love of a lot of people for nefarious purposes now. Yeah, Thucydides is another one. because It's got that real politique sort of, I'm going to use this to justify the idea that the stronger party can do whatever they want to the weaker party, even though that is arguably not at all what Thucydides' point is. And Herodotus, too, to a lesser extent. I mean, that's been the East versus West sort of thing. But those are the two historians that I first came to Greek history reading because I learned Greek history on my own. So it's always had a place within me. I hold it dear. And then you see the way it's kind of manipulated for these type of purposes. And it's just like, oh, man, A, I didn't realize it was as bad. B, it's like the more it happens, the more I get angry about it because I'm so attached to it for better or worse. Well, it's complicated. Loving this material is... Is always complicated. Yeah. I come across people who are like anti-classics. I'm liberal. These people tend to be the way liberal people who are like anything before these authors. You can't get anything of value from them because they're a product of their environment. And it's like, no, they still have lessons that you can learn from. It's not just because these certain authors like Aristotle might have steeply misogynistic views on women. doesn't mean you can't like Aristotle and some of the other stuff that he did. doesn't necessarily mean I think he's a role model. Using Aristotle as an example, it, there are things in the ancient world that you can value and you can hold close to, and it doesn't necessarily mean that you are one in the same of what they believed as well. Yeah, that was something that I used to encounter a lot more in the early days of Eidolon. People saying things like, you know, this is sort of silly and irrelevant, or dismissing the classical comparisons that we were making as sort of frivolous or, you know, the sort of repugnant phrase, mental masturbation gets thrown around a lot. And then somehow over the course of 2016, you know, one of the many things that changed, people stopped seeing it as quite so frivolous. The ways in which this kind of knowledge are still very much an important part of our discourse became a lot more obvious to a lot more people, I think. People that you are encountering in classics and academia because of 2016, 2017, are they tending to see that this is a problem more than they used to receptive to the fact that this is actually a problem like people are using the classics in perverted ways or is it still kind of just like banging your head against the wall trying to get people to not think that it's frivolous when i said a moment ago that people used to think it was frivolous i meant more initially sort of broader audiences thought that you know comparing marshall and twitter was just sort of a meaningless intellectual exercise that was what i was talking about before but to what you just asked, I think absolutely there were people in the discipline who early on thought that the kind of stuff that Eidolon was doing with talking about the potential danger of white supremacist reception of the classics. There were absolutely colleagues who thought that, that was frivolous and pointless and hand-wringing. Is it less now? It's absolutely less now. Yes. 
I mean, I was at CAMWIS this year and I was on a panel about white supremacy and classics. And there were a number of sort of panels and workshops on related topics. And it just seemed to me that there was a lot more discussion about this and related fields in a way that I thought was really healthy. I see, and this is my personal experience, more and more scholars on Twitter talking about this sort of thing. That's encouraging. And not saying that it wasn't like that two years ago. I just didn't see it as much. It could just be my personal experience. It wasn't like that two years ago quite as much. I mean, there were people talking about it, but not nearly as much. But I do worry that people could get a really distorted view of how much our discipline talks about white supremacy and classics, as opposed to how much our discipline talks about, you know, Homer and the oral tradition, (laughs) which absolutely right now there are more classicists talking about Homer than there are classicists talking about white supremacy and classics. But that is as it should be. That's our job. But if you just follow classicists online, you would think that this is all we discuss. So if you're at an event like CAMWIS or the SCS, then seeing, you know, even that small uptick in number of panels and sessions and workshops that are engaging with these issues is really heartening. Because really, this is a just a small percentage of what our discipline does, which is, again, as it should be. But it's a field that I think is really exciting and can have ripple effects for the entire discipline. Yeah, sometimes I miss not being in it anymore or not going that way. But, you know, life happens. At least I can have my passionate outlet with my podcast. That's how I feel too a lot of the time. You know, I, I'm, my in itness is debatable. You're publishing a book in classics, still kind of in it. <laughs> You're making your own path. <laughs> yeah, but I am not, you know, in an academic department. So is that something that you are still trying to get into or are you fine with whatever it is you're doing now? (laughs) I'm not currently on the job market or trying to break back in. My editor told me um, before I signed the contract for this book that it would make me untenurable because getting tenure is sort of a process of proving that you can tick certain boxes. And by establishing myself as a scholar who's first act out of grad school is going to be to write this crazy public facing controversial book that I would never fit the mold. And that was sort of a choice I was okay with making. If that's the way it is, and that, that's bullshit. <laughs> and, uh, and not saying that it's not because it wouldn't shock me if it is. We'll leave it at that. <laughs> yeah. But there's a freedom to the fact that I can explore the topics that I want to explore without worrying if they're the right topics. I feel very lucky. And with Eidolon, I mean, you're still definitely plugged into the field and you're, you have your hand on the pulse of what's going on. You're definitely still in it. It's different. <laughs> it's complicated. We sort of have one toe in it because none of the editors, well, that's not true. One of the editors is a current graduate student, but the rest of us are not in a classics department right now. But you're getting people who are writing that are currently in departments. Right, exactly. Yes. You know, our editorial board is all people who are in classics departments. And that's where we draw our writer pools from. And and very much, I think that's our sort of bread and butter readership as well. We try to have a solid mix of pieces by 
you know, more established classicists and also graduate students and even some undergrads. So names that you would recognize and names that you wouldn't recognize. And also within the names you would recognize category, right? Names that you would recognize from their scholarship as opposed to names you would recognize sort of from their Twitter activity. I have this giant spreadsheet where I keep track of all of our writers and sort of where they are professionally and try to keep a, a really diverse mix of you know, men and women, we try for as much racial diversity as possible. It's very difficult in classics. And, you know, the, the kinds of institutions that we're drawing from. Writer demographics is something that the editorial team talks about a lot. You probably wouldn't even know that to look at what we publish, but that's sort of a <laughs> behind the scenes look, I guess. How the sausage is made, so to speak. There's definitely been some memorable pieces, so you guys are doing a good job. I mean, I talked about the Harry Potter one. My actually absolute favorite article, I don't know if it was on Eidolon or if it was on the other blog. Idol Musings? It was the one with Ovid and Dwight Schrute. Oh, that was so funny because I'm a huge Office fan and I like Ovid and that made me laugh out loud. I don't usually laugh out loud when I read things, but that was one of my favorites. Yeah, I think that was Idle Musings. When we're doing sort of a special issue or even if it's not a fully fledged special issue, a sort of theme week, most of it's on Idle On, but we try to do a few things on Idle Musings as well. It started off when we had this spate of pitches that were personal essays by sort of former classicists who were now doing like woodworking and carpentry. It was so weird. And a lot of them were also poets. So one of <laughs> one of the editors wrote me a poem. It was an ode of a classicist craftsman poet who also wants to do a Donald Trump comparison. <laughs> <laughs> that was the title of it. It was a poem about classics and craftsmanship and Donald Trump. And we needed a place to publish it. It didn't seem quite right for Eidolon. So we created an editorial blog. I'm really excited about your book. I read it, the whole thing, in like an hour. I couldn't put it down. It was really great. I was blown away. I was like, this is crazy stuff. Wow. <laughs> oh, thank you. Yeah, I, I started getting like stress nightmares about people hating it. Not like, you know, all right people. That's going to happen. <laughs> yeah, that'll happen. It'll be good if they hit it, right? Don't kid yourself. They're not even going to read it. <laughs> no, yeah. They, they hate it on principle, which is fine. Yeah, you get people who comment immediately on things and you're like, this should have taken you at least five minutes to read this article and you've already commented. Like, you don't read anything. <laughs> you're definitely commenting just based on the title and the pull quote. Exactly. There's no chance that you read this. Yeah, but every time HUP's publicist is like, oh, it looks like we're going to get a review in you know, X outlet. I'm like, that's awesome. And then I'm like, oh no, what if they hate me? <laughs> <laughs> this is your first book, right? It is. It is my first book. So you have the new anticipation and like dread. <laughs> yeah. The, the pressure is on. You only get one shot at a first book, right? But I'm proud of it though. It was a eye-opening read and I feel like a good chunk of people are going to have the similar reactions until like the last year. I did not know that this was a problem. Yeah, well, I do want to apologize. <laughs> yeah, I do want to apologize in advance to readers. Pretty much everybody who has read all or part of my book has said something to me to the effect of, I was happier before I read this. So, sorry. <laughs> but what can you do? I do think it's important. Well, it's better to have knowledge than be in blissful ignorance. Exactly. There's a reason I'm not on Reddit. Before I was, I, I got on Reddit, it was just a big time sink. Now I'm curious. I was fighting the urge this weekend to go check this out. And then I was like, no, don't do that. Don't torture yourself. <laughs> yeah, don't do that. 
That is one thing that worries me. What if the message that people take from my book is this Roosh V guy sounds really important, right? Because if people take that message, then that would be an utter disaster. The point is not that any one of these awful people spouting awful toxic views is somebody important. Just a few months ago on the Daily Stormer, there was an article where Andrew Anglin, supposedly, although there are a lot of rumors that he uses a ghostwriter, but Andrew Anglin was explaining why Tucker Carlson has all the same views as the Daily Stormer and just phrases them in a less neo-Nazi trollish way. So the message that I'm trying to send is not necessarily let's pay more attention to Andrew Anglin, because first of all, that will just make you really, really sad. Um, And second, he as an individual is not that important, right? The important part is the fact that these ideas have become really widespread and normalized. I think, and I hope, if people were going to go to those views anyway, your book wouldn't have been the reason. People would have been susceptible to that sort of stuff because they underlying felt that sort of stuff. I don't even mean in the sense of people getting red-pilled by my book. Even the idea that people will pay more attention to these specific individuals from a critical lens is something that I am a little bit worried about. Oh, okay. I get what you're saying. People giving them more attention. Yeah, and I mean, and that's definitely how they frame it, right? That I'm sending, you know, hate clicks their way and that this is really victory for them because now there's a Harvard University Press book that's been written about them. And that's an idea that sort of sends chills down my spine. But ultimately, I think that the fact that they're going to find a way to frame this as a victory is not a good enough reason to not talk about it. They would frame anything as a victory. Definitely. I'm glad you wrote the book. I feel like it's necessary. I mean, I love this field. I devote so much time to doing my podcast. It's like I don't want it to get tarnished because if people were to ignore it and then more and more of these types of people would projecting down the road and it would just fester the field and give a bad public opinion to the general populace. Because, I mean, classics outreach can be kind of so-so as it is with traditional academia and the general populace. And you don't need this negative thing just getting bigger and bigger and festering until it becomes a sore, so to speak, for lack of a better term, if you get what I'm saying. I do, yeah. And I agree. But on both ends, hopefully, it seems like there's more and more classics outreach happening from people in the academic side of things. There's more people writing popular articles and, and then we have social media and that sort of stuff. And a wider mix of people, which I think is really exciting. I think that, you know, even a decade ago, the kinds of people who were doing, you know, classics writing for a broader public, you were really talking about very established professors writing op-eds for the most part. And social media has allowed for us to explode that paradigm. And, you know, anybody who's in the classics field can be a public classicist now. And even people who do not identify as part of the classics field, like you. Or I don't know exactly. I mean, do you identify as part of the classics field? Sort of, right? Yes and no. I would consider myself a classicist, but I don't know if I would consider. Yeah. I don't know. I'd make a podcast. I mean, I just reached two million downloads, so I guess I do something right. Oh, congratulations! That's amazing. Thanks. It was the perfect storm when I stepped in because there was like a desire for ancient Greek-related audio content. Because there was a lot of Roman stuff. There still is a lot of Roman stuff. I mean, people still want to listen to a lot of Roman stuff, but I just stepped into the perfect storm. You can tell that classics is still popular with the general population. 
at least in my personal conversations with people, and I can only go off of that, there just seemed to be a disconnect between the people who were reading the material and the people who were writing the material. And now I feel like that's getting smaller. Yeah, and the more mainstream parts of the discipline can't ignore sort of the, you know, the success that people like you and I are having, right? I mean, 2 million downloads, that's a ridiculous number, you know, for classes who are worried about declining enrollments to hear. I know it's got about a million and a quarter views at this point. It's quite shocking for me. <laughs> On average, each episode, I mean, it collects over time, but usually anywhere from ten to 25,000 listens within six weeks. So that's more than I would ever teach in my lifetime. If you add them all up, I don't think I could get 25,000 people if I sat in my class <laughs> if I were to go to the traditional route to put that in perspective. So it's mind blowing and it's very humble. Like you have this platform that people care about. So it makes me take it a lot seriously as well because I don't want to disappoint. Yeah. I'm not saying I will, but it, when I did it, it was, it was meant to be a hobby. And now I'm like, oh, this is a thing. <laughs> no, I, I know what you mean. It was a really good conversation. It was a really good book. And I'm really looking forward to that when it comes out October 8th, right? The 8th. The 8th, yes. And you can get it now for pre-order. Amazon and I guess from your publisher straight up, right? Yes, that's right. Well, it was great talking to you. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, for sure. Thank you. I've learned a lot from the conversation and from your book. And I will continue to learn a lot from Eidolon as well. (laughs) 